0: Well, we do have a Bible study this morning. We're in Romans chapter three. And of course, Paul, as he's at the end of his third missionary journey, as we have discussed, he takes pen to parchment and he's writing uh, from the city of Corinth to the Christians who are in Rome. He had never been to Rome. He desired to go to Rome. And he said, "I'm, um, I'm ready to come to you to preach the gospel. I've been hindered at this time from coming. But then he would give the wonderful theme to this letter that he writes to them that we call. The book of Romans. And as he's writing to them, the theme, of course, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed through from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then in the next verse, if you've been with us in our study or perhaps read the book of Romans yourself, that Paul begins to tell us the need for the gospel, every single person, that God is going to judge sin, that the wrath of God will come against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 1, he writes about the one that we might look at that is immoral, the one who is unrighteous. Uh, he, He writes about about how uh, the unrighteousness of man in chapter 1 suppresses the truth. And and creation around this testifies to everyone that there is a wonderful creator and no one is without excuse. We also know that as man comes along, begins to suppress the truth of God, that what happens is in this moral decline, spiritual decline, that man begins to make God in his own image, changing the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man involved in, in defining who God is by their own reasoning, beginning to to be involved in idol worship, which then as you begin to worship god in your own way in your own reasoning uh, idol worship it leads to as we see all kinds of unrighteousness it leads to great moral depravity and immorality in chapter 1 so we looked at that very carefully and i would encourage you to 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 you know pick up that study or to download it if you haven't because it's very important for us to understand what it is that Paul is saying. He is establishing the fact that we need the gospel of Christ. And then over the last couple of weeks, as we've been in chapter two, to the one who may say, yeah, those immoral people of chapter one, those sinners, those idolaters, you know, they are are ones that deserve the wrath of God. But then Paul comes right back in chapter two and he says, but you who think that you are righteous to the self-righteous moralists, you are guilty as well you might recall that as Paul is explaining that in chapter 2, I think it's very well illustrated what we see in Luke's gospel in chapter 7. And in Luke chapter 7, we read that that story of, of Jesus being invited by a Pharisee, his name was Simon, to come to the Pharisee's house to have dinner. And remember that the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were very proud, they were very arrogant, they boasted in their righteousness, they boasted in keeping the law, and, and uh, they were ones that, that loved to externally show people how How righteous they were. And I believe that Simon, as you read that story of inviting Jesus, he did not invite Jesus to try to get to know Jesus or to be warm to Jesus, but he would have guests that were there. We know that from the text. There are other religious leaders, no doubt, and dignitaries, and they're watching Jesus. They're wanting to find a reason uh, to accuse him or come against him. And as Jesus would accept the invitation to Simon's house, that during the dinner, all of a sudden, it gets interrupted by this woman who comes in and she falls at the feet of Jesus. And I'm sure that when she did that, there was a gasp in the room. And as she is there worshiping him, And everyone's looking upon this woman who was known in the community as a notorious sinner. And, of course, Luke putting that terminology in there that she was probably a harlot that was well-known in the area. But she's worshiping Jesus. She's weeping. She's crying. And she's washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And Simon, it tells us, was thinking, if Jesus, if this man were really a prophet, if he knew what kind of woman was touching him, And Jesus, perceiving that, would turn to Simon and say, Simon, I got something to say to you. That when I came to your house, you didn't provide any water for me to have my feet washed. You didn't have any oil to anoint my head. You you didn't greet me with a kiss. And you see, 2,000 years ago, hospitality was very, very important. In other words, Jesus was saying, you're a rude host, Simon. You didn't greet me in that way. But this woman, this precious woman, Woman has not ceased to weep and worship me and to wash my feet with their tears and dry them with their hair. And then he would turn to the woman and he would address her and she would look into the eyes of God himself and he said, your sins which are many are forgiven. Your faith has saved you and go in peace. And I think it's a good illustration of what is leading us into what we are told here in the book of Romans, that here is Simon uh, full of... And arrogance, and I'm religious. And, and he says to the Simons of the world, to the Pharisees of the world, you too are guilty. You are guilty before God. And as he's indicting all of mankind, Paul is inspired by the Spirit of God. He says, not only is the one that is considered to be uh, a heathen, unrighteous, immoral in chapter one, and, and you're saying that they deserve the wrath of God, that's obvious, but wait, so is the one that you see yourself as being self-righteous. And know this, that God who sees all things, he is the one who knows what is in the heart of a man. And he will judge according to truth. And don't think that you will escape the judgment of God. And he will render to each one according to his deeds. And if you want to be judged according to your deeds, if you want to be one that stands before God and say that I deserve eternal life, and you see every single one of us, we know people that they seem to have confidence or they believe and they're being deceived, that they'll be able to stand before God and say that I was a good person, I deserve eternal life. Paul says, okay, to the one who thinks that way, eternal life is for those who have perfectly done good, who have perfectly done righteous, who has perfectly kept the law. And if you have done that in everything that you have done, everything that you have said, every thought that you have Thunk, you know, in everything, every second of your life, then you are righteous and you will be okay on that judgment day. The problem is, as we continue in chapter 3 here, and as Paul's been building this case, this indictment against mankind, is no one meets that standard. In other words, no one is perfect, and that's the standard in which you, in your own righteousness, will make it into heaven. And all of us are guilty, and that's why we need the gospel of Christ. You might recall another story. It's actually a parable that is told in Luke's gospel in chapter 18. And in this parable, I'll read it to you, verses 9 through 14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Many of you are familiar with it. But Jesus, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves and that they were righteous and despised others. He tells the parable, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious leader, the other a tax collector. The tax collector would be put in the same category as that woman that came there in Luke 7. A notorious sinner. Tax collectors were despised back then. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector for I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that that man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, that is the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus tells of that parable that it was the tax collector who humbled himself, confessed that he was a sinner, and forgive me, Lord, he's the one that went away justified, not the one who was boasting in his righteousness. And as we move into chapter 3, that word justified is going to be explained to us in the doctrine of justification that will be introduced later in this chapter, that we are justified, declared righteous before God, not in what we do and what we boast in, in our own righteousness, but in what he did on the cross at Calvary and being buried and rising from the grave that it comes freely by grace through faith. But before we look at that, Paul continues in this section of Romans that tells us that the whole world is guilty before God. So chapter 3 of Romans, verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the, the profit of circumcision? So what we're going to see here in the beginning of this chapter is that there are going to be those that perhaps are reading what Paul has written. Uh, they're hearing this, and so they may be skeptic. They may try to argue against what Paul is declaring. So Paul is anticipating these questions, particularly that would come from the Jewish mind. He, what advantage then, or what is the profit of circumcision, they may ask, um, listening to Paul's argument, and, and you know, what good is it to be in God's covenant people? If what you're saying, Paul, is true, you said, as we read in Verse 11 of chapter 2, that with God there's no partiality. Then what good is it to be Jewish? So Paul answers that, those who would ask that or challenge him in that way. Verse 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So the apostle simply states the advantage chiefly is this, that to the Jews they were given the oracles of God. In other words, they were given the word of God. Now, that's a tremendous advantage, isn't it? That is having the word of God. And I hope and pray for every single one of us that we would never, never underestimate the value and the advantage of having the word of God. We have truth given to us. We don't have to walk in deception. We don't have to walk in darkness. We don't have to walk after the world's lies. We have the word of God, truth given to us, and we can walk in God's ways and in his truth and in his wisdom. And we do owe a great you know, amount of gratitude and thanks to those Jewish scribes that preserved the word of God so carefully over the centuries. We know, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that we're going through Isaiah on Wednesday night and as they found the Dead Sea scrolls they found a whole scroll of the book of Isaiah all 66 chapters absolutely an incredible find written in Hebrew dated 200 BC 200 years before the birth of Jesus which is interesting because in Isaiah there's prophecies concerning what the birth And the life and the sufferings of the Messiah that come on the scene, Jesus Christ. And we have that whole scroll 200 years before Jesus came on the scene. Speaking of Messiah, speaking of Jesus that would come in his first coming. And and so as they translated it, it is the same as what's in your Bible. It hasn't changed. There are people that come along and say, well, the Bible's changed over the years. Show me the proof. And I'll show you otherwise. So Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures, promises that they had the oracles of God were given to them just as they are given to us. And know that you and I have a great advantage and blessing and benefit over the world who doesn't have the word of God. So we want to be able to share it with others. We want to be able to give God's truth and the gospel of Christ to others. But he continues with those who are skeptic, those who may challenge what it is that he has presented so far that mankind is guilty. And verse 3, for what if some did not believe, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Verse 4, indeed, let God be true. But every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and And may overcome when you are judged. So we need to know that God will be faithful in keeping his word. In fulfilling his word. His promises. And Paul says, if you don't believe... Does that make the person I ask the faithfulness of God without effect? He says, no, no way. God is the one that is true. His word is true. And if you are believing what the word declares to you, and if you are doing what the word instructs you to do, then you will see and you're going to discover that he is true and he is faithful. When Paul uses that term, certainly not. He's going to use it again and here in a few verses. He uses it a couple more times in this book, the book of Romans. It's very strong wording. It means no way, absolutely not. What he is saying, it is impossible for God to be unfaithful to his promises and to his word. This is a verse that you can show to those who question, who, who doubt, who debate God's faithfulness. And that his word is true. And we are being told that his word is true. That he is true. He cannot lie. That his ways are true. And he will be faithful to his word. Even if you do not believe. But I want to encourage you. Those of us who do believe. Please, please always remember that God's word and promises and precepts are true and he will be faithful to his word. He cannot lie. He does no evil and he is faithful to what his word declares because maybe, just maybe, there's somebody that here that you're saying, I've read his promise. I've read his word. And Lord, I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's true for me. Or how's it going to work out? Because I want to go in my own way, my own understanding. Listen, his word is true to you. And as you stand on his promises and rest in his love, you will find find that his word is true and you will be blessed and you will be benefited but he's calling you to trust in him he cannot lie he does no evil his word is true for you and i hope that we would keep in our hearts what david discovered even as he writes it the end of his life in second samuel chapter 22 verse 31 for as god his way is perfect the word of the lord is proven he is a shield to all those who trust in him so Paul here quoting actually in verse 4 here that he quotes from Psalm 51 when David came face to face with his sin with Bathsheba and he prays for God's forgiveness. crying out for mercy. God is faithful. He will forgive and when he judges he is just and righteous. But the skeptic may respond continuing to, to challenge what Paul has been saying. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. So the There would be those who would argue in what Paul is saying. Those who would say, if my unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, how can God judge me? My sin ultimately serves to bring him more glory. So Paul is taking that argument. And you know how people can be. They have a tendency to take the truth of God and begin to challenge that truth begin to give these hypothetical questions and situations that we see here, coming up with their own reasoning, with their own intellect and understanding. Hey, Paul, you're writing that we're all sinners, and me being a sinner, I'm only proving that God's word is truth. So why would God take vengeance on me? Because I'm proving his truth. It's just uh, the dumb reasoning of man and then in verse six certainly not for then how will god judge the world is how paul answers if you're saying that unrighteousness should be rewarded then how could god judge anyone your argument doesn't make sense but then in verse seven for if the truth of god has increased through my lie to his glory why am i also still judged as a sinner why not say let us do evil that good may come and we are slanderously reported uh, as verse eight we we read and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just so there can be those again coming up with these you know questions and what about the one who perhaps comes up with this real exciting and remarkable testimony and there's a lot of excitement and emotion in the testimony to try to turn people over to Christ but the testimony's made up there's no truth in the story and it does happen once in a while. I remember when I was a young Christian that there was somebody, he's real popular and, and um, I remember listening to him, loved listening to this guy who was popular in the church, he even came to Colorado Springs and, and went to, to listen to him speak in a large gathering, thousands of people and he had seemingly this powerful testimony how he came to Christ. And it was just like, wow, this is amazing. And people did come to Christ through that testimony. But here's the thing. They found out shortly after that that it was all made up. It was all a lie. They proved it. he was exposed in that. So here is the question. Well, what about, you know, if the truth of God has increased through my lie, you know, for his glory, am I still being judged as a sinner? It's still wrong. There, there. You know, I heard a faith teacher on TV. I couldn't believe it. And you know, he's got this large church, and he's telling the people how he had this vision of God. He he was taken, or vision of heaven. That is, he he was taken to heaven. And the way he was describing it, it was like really. And all these people are ooh and all. Oh, and I saw Abraham and he had this big golden chain, and there are a lot of animals. And you know. um, Jesus and I went swimming in the river of life. And just, I'm thinking, you know, Paul, when he saw the vision of heaven, he saw things that he writes that were unspeakable. I can't even utter. It was so glorious. He couldn't repeat it. Here this guy, you know, is saying as the people, he just got this captivated audience. Yeah, I saw this and Abraham with the, you know, this robe on and, chains of gold around him and swimming in the river of life. And I thought, oh boy. It stretched the glory and give God the glory mentality. So the scripture says, that's not right. Others may say, let me do evil that good may come. So there's those who have testimonies that uh, we know that had a hard life. They, they were involved in sin and wickedness. They got saved. And that's a wonderful testimony. And you see, that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. The gospel has the power of God to say for everyone who believes. And maybe you're here. And maybe you've lived in a life where there's a lot of carnality and sin that Jesus died for you. He loves you and he's calling you to himself to turn to him, to repent from your sins. Salvation is for you. And sometimes people think I've sinned so much. Could God really forgive me? He forgives. He took all of your sins upon himself as he died on that cross for you. But what Paul is saying here is he's warning about wanting to go out and do sinful things so that you can magnify the grace of God. Don't think that I, the only way I can get a powerful testimony is I need to go out and do all kinds of bad things, drugs and drinking and immorality. Then I'll turn to God and then I'll have this wonderful testimony. Of course, that's the wrong kind of thinking. Or it could be that Paul is addressing the one who says, well, Paul, you're preaching grace here that is not based on our salvation. What we do is based on what he did. So that means we just go out and live any way that we want. You know, we can go out and sin. And Paul will address that actually later in the book of Romans, as in chapter six, he will say that should we continue and sin that grace abounds? He says, certainly not. He uses that word again. Absolutely no way, because we're dead to that stuff we're dead to sin we walk now in the newness of life as we identify with jesus christ as we put our faith and trust in him you see living in grace doesn't mean you go out and live any way that you want it means that you're free to live for him and all the sin and carnality you put away Identified in baptism, he says, as you identify with Christ, you go under the water. All my sin and crud is buried with Christ. I come out of the waters and that new resurrected life and that newness of life. We will get to that when we get to chapter six. We need to remember this that the best testimony that we can give anyone is the testimony what is God doing with your life today, in this season of your life? Are you following the Lord? And to remember that it is God's grace that brings about good and not the sin. And as we continue, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So whatever smoke screens that an individual puts up, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they're considered you know, unrighteous or they consider themselves to be righteous, Everyone has need for the gospel of Christ that Paul has begun to write about. The, 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 the unrighteous there, the heathen indicted by creation, the Gentile by conscience, and the Hebrew by commandments. God speaks clearly to all people, creation outwardly, conscience inwardly, the commandments given through the word of God. God speaks to every culture throughout every generation, leaving all without excuse. And then we see that Paul kind of sums up the condition of man in general in verses 10 through 18. Verse 10, as it is written, now notice that, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So notice here, as it is written, and Paul says that there is none righteous, no, not one. Now that's pretty easy to understand, right? That no one means exactly that, no one that there is none that seek after God, all have turned aside. And of course, that word all literally means that in the original language. It means all, without exception. And so these are good verses for us to not only understand our condition in needing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are guilty, but these are good verses to show anyone who says that man is good, I am good, I'll be able to stand before God in my own righteousness, my own togetherness, my own religiousness, whatever the case may be. There is none that is good. And this is good verses to show anyone who perhaps comes to you and says, well, there's good in man, or the, you know, the new ager that says we have the Christ consciousness. I don't think so. This is the diagnosis of mankind that is telling us we are all sick. We're all depraved. This is not the bad guys. This is us. This is speaking of you and me and our need for the gospel. And as Paul has been indicting mankind that we're guilty, all of us, and we fall short of God's standard, to make sure, particularly to perhaps the the one who is a self-righteous moralist, to the Jew who might say, well, that's just some kind of New Testament thing that you're coming up with, Paul. Paul is saying no. That this idea that we've all are un- unrighteous has deep roots in the Old Testament writers and prophets. He says, as it is written, and he quotes a bunch of scripture from the Old Testament. He quotes, uh, as we look at this, uh, he quotes from uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 14, there is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, he, he quotes from Psalm 5. He quotes from Psalm 140. He quotes from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 16. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8. If you were here this last Wednesday, we just went over that chapter in Isaiah. That their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are their ways. So he is showing us that it has always been this way, that this is not a new you know, concept that I'm coming up with. None is good. No, not one. We're all full of deceit. Our mouths are full of cursing. Destruction and misery are you know, our ways. And Paul, as he shows that God has declared that we are guilty from head to toe. And then Paul gives his closing arguments here. That verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be, uh, become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Underline it. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, because the Jews had the law, they felt that they were righteous before God. They thought that they were righteous because of their outward appearances or the sacrifices or the observances of the law. You know... There are those Christians that can do the same thing. Well, we're righteous because I was baptized or I took communion or I worship on a Sabbath day. And it's amazing how many people will call me and want to argue with me. Oh, if you're going to be saved, you have to be baptized and you can read them by the, you know, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You see, the law was given not to declare us righteous, but to show us that we're not righteous. And Paul makes the same case in the book of Galatians, doesn't he? That the law declares us guilty, and there is no deed that you can do to justify yourself in the sight of God. There's no work. That woman at the feet of Jesus. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And as she went away, I'm sure the, her heart changed. She's forgiven. Absolutely incredible story. As she was leaving, Jesus didn't say, oh, wait a minute there. Make sure that you keep the Sabbath. And make sure that you're baptized. It's amazing how many people call me and say, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Make sure that you do this thing. He said, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. And there are those who come along and say, well, you know, Jesus said, go out and be baptized. And he did. And baptism is important. But it's not requirement for salvation. There are those who argue that you've got to keep the Sabbath. You want to worship on the Sabbath? Worship on the Sabbath. I'm one that, as Paul says, one man esteems one day above another. Some esteem every day like you. Be convinced in your own mind. I And one that every day is to be a day that we worship the Lord. That we can come together as the church, just as they did in the early church in Acts chapter 2, that daily, what? They went from house to house. They were together, they were worshiping. They were growing in the Lord together. And you see, we do good works because we love the Lord. We don't do good works in order to be saved. We do things because we have faith in him. And you see, baptism is important. I think worshiping him, coming together, yes, that's very important. You want to observe the Sabbath? Observe the Sabbath. Those things that that we do is evident that we have been changed and we have come in faith in Jesus Christ. But how dare any of us put our cruddy righteousness and works in the backdrop of what he did on the cross and say, I deserve salvation. And if any of us say that I did this thing, that is faith in Jesus and you do this, you're saying that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient for your forgiveness and salvation, that you have to add to it, that when he cried from the cross, it is finished, that it's not finished, I have to finish it. So this is something that we want to give to others and truth to others. And so why is Paul spending so much time painstakingly declaring that we're all guilty so that we understand? Number one, that we understand that there is a problem and it's a sin problem. And you see, today, you can't give the gospel without the cross, without mentioning sin. And I've even had pastors that have told me, well, we don't mention sin. We'll say mistakes. We'll, you know, uh, you know, we'll kind of go around it because we don't want people to feel condemned. Listen, there's a sin problem. And we can't be afraid to say that, that we're all sinners. And that's why Jesus came, to die for our sins and we're to repent and turn to Jesus who took your sins upon himself. So the good news, the gospel There's bad news, and that is that we've fallen short. And that's what Paul has been explaining, that we have need for this gospel of Christ, which is the power of God to save. So first of all, that we understand that there's a sin problem and Jesus, as we're going to see the doctrine of justification came to take care of the sin problem, and that we are justified freely by his grace through faith. And then second of all, so that we don't boast. That we will not be able to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I did pretty good down there, wasn't I? I did this, and I did that, and I did this. And you see, all we're going to be able to do is marvel at the incredible grace of our Lord who died for us, believe in Him, faith in Him, justified freely. And you see, it does something. As we come in faith, it changes our hearts And then we get to live for him. We want to live for him because why? Because of our love for him. Love will accomplish more than you ever do in your own efforts. And what I pray for us here at Calvary Chapel that as we grow in the word of God and grow in grace is that, yeah, Lord, that I I love you and I want to enjoy you and I want to know you and walk with you. He's called us to holiness. He's called us to walk with him but it's not that I got to, it's that I get to because I belong to him. And what a privilege it is to know you, Lord. Will you enjoy him? Walk with him and know that he wants to do just wonderful things in your life because the world and sin and carnality is going to leave you deceived and it's going to wipe you out and do you in. We get to walk with the Lord because he has saved us. And I pray that we would never lose this season of Thanksgiving, that thankfulness for what he has done for us and just marveling at this so great a salvation that has been given to us freely by faith. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for this section of Romans that uh, Lord, uh, we know that you have written to us that we're all guilty, but you didn't leave us without any hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ and what he did for us in going to the cross. And it's not in ourselves, in our religiousness. It isn't in a church, it isn't in a pastor, it isn't in any of those things. But Lord, it is in faith alone. And then it goes from faith to faith, just continuing to know you and walk with you, delight in you, Lord. But Lord, we thank you for this free gift of salvation. And I pray if there's anyone here today that maybe you're on either end of the spectrum. Maybe you think, well, you know, I've gone to church, I'm okay. Uh, and, and, and I'm good. Well, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Because the church won't save you and your own goodness won't save you. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. You think, well, I can never come to Jesus. He'll never accept me. Yes, he will. He died for your sins. He loves you. So the gospel of Christ is for everyone who believes. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, And he's calling you today because today is the day of salvation. Will you come to him? Will you come to him? And you can. And he desires for you to surrender your life to him, to confess that you're a sinner and need to be forgiven. You can do that right now, right where you're sitting, sincerely. That you pray, Jesus, I come, a sinner. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. And I believe you died on that cross for me. And I come in faith believing that you're the Son of God, who not only died for my sins, but was buried and rose again from the grave. And that you're alive. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I do want to to know you more, to walk with you, to know your word and your promises. I thank you for this new beginning. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. And thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name.